Read together. Let's read aloud. Acts 12, verse 1. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we give you thanks and praise for the very opportunity that we have this morning to hear from you and through your word speak to our hearts. We ask, Lord God, that you would bless and anoint us with your Holy Spirit to help us, Lord God, to take fully the words that you have given for us today, to be written plainly and clearly upon our minds and upon our hearts. We ask that you would open our ears and our eyes to all of your truth today. And this morning we we pray for Olga's mom, Fe Medina. We ask that you would be with her, encourage her, comfort her, strengthen her, and heal her, Lord, of this uh, problem that she has with her lung. We ask, Father, your blessing upon her family and uh, those that are certainly there concerned and hoping, Lord God, for you to do a great and mighty work. We lift them up to you today, as we do all those who we know that are uh, sick and in need of your healing touch. We lift them up to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. I'm sure that we've all heard the saying, the pen is mightier than the sword. The adage that I just read is taken from an 1839 play by the English playwright Edward Bulwer-Lytton. And it was a play about Cardinal Richelieu. Some of you may recognize the name from The Three Musketeers. Am I still not being heard? Interesting. Uh, We'll need a little bit more sound, please. I'm just so soft-spoken. I guess that's what it is. <laughs> they, they need some more. I, I, people are not hearing me, so it might be that uh, heater that's on or whatever. All right, I'll start over again. Here we go. <laughs> Everybody heard what I said about the pen being mightier than the sword. All right, that's from a play. <laughs> 1839. I'm sure none of you were around. Okay. It was a British play about the Frenchman Cardinal Richelieu, and we know from Three Musketeers. There you go. All right, so I'm just making sure that some of you heard me. All right. But, but that particular little adage carries simply the idea that communication surpasses violence in effectiveness, worth, and value. Communication surpasses violence. The pen is mightier than the sword. And... Uh, It surpasses it in effectiveness, surpasses it in worth and in value. But actually a predecessor to this statement is attributed to the Greek playwright Euripides, 
who is supposed to have written the statement that tongue is mightier than the blade. Well, honestly, I'm most drawn to the Scriptures for the greatest statements. And along these particular lines, none can compare to the words found in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For there it says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I think that's a greater statement, isn't it? Because it speaks of the Word of God being much more powerful and much more mighty to do greater things in the hearts and lives of men. But the author goes on and he says in verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so rather than understand this from the standpoint of just clear uh, 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 academia or uh, try to understand this just from the sake of, of, of a superficial looking at it, it really cuts deep to our hearts. And I added that particular verse, verse 13, to the thought of this uh, power of the Word of God because it cuts deeply into all of our hearts, if we say we love God, if we say we love His Word, if we say we serve the Lord with all that is within us. And with all this in mind, our understanding of the first four verses of Acts chapter 12 will rest on the power of God's Word. These first four verses will rest on the power of God's Word, but not only that, it will also rest on the predominance of Christ's love. And not only that, but it will rest also upon the purposes of God's sovereignty over everything that man, in his most violent state, could ever think to accomplish for the sake of self, a nation, or a cause. Now in these verses of Scripture that we're studying today, we are going to catch glimpses of the heart of of a person named Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great, and the political reasons that he acted as he did against the apostles of Jesus Christ as well as against the church of Jesus Christ. And so when you look at verses 1 and 2, it says, Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. And then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. With a sword. This is man's way of conquering. Man's way of dealing with issues. Man's way of getting victory over others. Man's way of holding positions, of gaining positions, of overthrowing other positions. But what is God's weapon? And what is greater than the things that man uses against man? I want to begin with the first thought, and that is the predominance of Christ's love is mightier than the sword. The predominance of Christ's love is mightier than the sword. Now just for the sake of background, let me mention that Herod Agrippa's grandfather, Herod the Great, who ruled in the days of Jesus' birth, was also the one who ordered that the male children of Bethlehem be murdered. He began to hear that there was a Messiah, that there was this king rising up in Egypt, and the wise men that came from the east came and spoke to him and all. 
And he was, in essence, he believed that he was being deceived by these wise men and, and, and whatnot. He, he became angry when he heard that there was a king that was born for the Jews. And you have to understand that Herod and the families of Herod uh, all had this connection, even though they were not just full Jews, but nonetheless they had a connection, a political connection uh, with them that uh, he was angry and uh, also fearful. And so he had ordered all of these children in Bethlehem from the age two on down, male children, killed. It's also important to note that Agrippa's uncle, Herod Antipas, was the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. And so we see a wicked and evil pattern in this scheming and murderous family. They were certainly ones who believed that the sword was was the only way, and the sword was mightier than any way of communicating. So the Herods <coughs> themselves, just uh, historically speaking, were despised by the Jews because they were Idumeans. They were Edomites of the line of Esau. And the Jews resented having them rule over the Jews. At the same time, the Herods were part Jewish, being of Hasmonean descent, uh, we know that uh, we know them better as as the Maccabees, living uh, within the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament, uh, around uh, 139 B.C. and so on. But the Maccabees, you know, the the time where uh, uh, the uh, celebration of Hanukkah took place, and and all. I won't go deep too deep into that. But that's their background, at least from their Jewish part. So Agrippa. Getting back to our text here, realizing that it was politically popular for him, he persecuted the church to convince the Jewish people of his loyalty to the tradition of the fathers. This was all a matter of politics. It was all a matter of politics. And today, all of us in this room, in some way, are going to be affected with politics and are being affected with politics even today as we're looking at this presidential race that is going on. I think this is, a, this is a good time to say to believers in Jesus Christ that we have a responsibility as citizens of this country to be wise, to be prayerful in our choices that, that are being laid before us. Because I tell you this, if you look carefully at what's going on politically in our country today, they are doing very closely to what Herod was doing in his time was doing things politically to get his ways and his means to silence the Word of God, to silence the people of God in a country that was founded on the principles of God's Word. I would be very careful. I would pray. I'll be, be, you know, I'm, I'm encouraging you. I'm not, I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm telling you to pray and to realize that we cannot be like those you know, the proverbial ostrich just sticks his head in the sand and think that, you know, well, we'll just let it work out the way it works out. We are still, by the way, in this country, responsible for praying for this nation. And we can take that, that uh, uh, <clears throat> spiritual principle from Second Chronicles chapter 7, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And while that is directly 
spoken to Israel, it is also spiritually spoken to us. If my people will pray. Because you see, politics is just a weird game. But for us, we see the time of Jesus coming. So we need to understand that we have a responsibility and, and a privilege to vote. We ought to take that opportunity. But we ought to take it wisely. Not just vote because, uh, you know, the passions of, of politics. I tell you, I've heard a lot of marvelous speeches and, 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 and I can see how they can, you know, really stir up people's hearts. But I tell you what, they are so far from where God wants us to be. We need to be listening. Well, that was just a commercial, I suppose. That wasn't all a part of this. But it, but it brings us to mind, you know, how things are done for political reasons. And so now that Gentiles were more openly a part of the church, as we've been reading in the last few chapters of Acts, Herod's plan was even more agreeable to nationalistic Jews who wanted nothing to do with Jews who were accepting of pagans. That's what they were looking at at the sect they, they uh, considered, you know, as being a, a Jewish sect, but way off the mark because they were preaching Jesus. So now they're accepting Gentiles who they consider to be pagans. And so what does Herod do? Politically, and for these reasons, he stretches out his hand, which means that he violently attacked and mistreated those belonging to the church. Let me just say that in many other nations outside of ours, and even some close to ours, just across the border, Christians are persecuted for their faith. Remember this. So what Luke is telling us here, the author of, of the book of Acts, he just simply says that James, the brother of John, was killed with a sword. Which means that he was more than likely beheaded and done by the Jews who took a, a, a passage in Deuteronomy that tells us that if somebody is speaking false doctrine or whatever, uh, they have the right to go with the edge of the sword and kill him. So he's more, more than likely beheaded here. And the traditions of the church fathers uh, all said that he was. But this was a new occurrence. This was a new development or stage in the short history of the church, being that James was the first of the twelve apostles who followed Jesus to be martyred. The first one. Up to chapter 12, the church had been experiencing one great and exciting and moving conversion after another. First, there was Saul of Tarsus, who was actually one who had persecuted the church. Now Saul of Tarsus is a believer in Jesus Christ. And then not only Saul of Tarsus, a Jew, but then the Roman centurion Cornelius, a Gentile, has come to know Jesus Christ and has exhibited those, the, you know, that, that uh, evidence because of the Holy Spirit and his whole household as well. Followed by the mixed group of, of Jews and Gentiles in Antioch. They have come to know Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is moving not only among the Jews, but among the Gentiles now. And when God moves, the enemy wants to stifle. The enemy wants to silence. And now the horrid head of satanic opposition is raised along with its sword, you see. And what is mightier than this opposition? What is mightier than this opposition that comes with the edge of a sword? Let me just say simply, it is the predominant love of Jesus Christ. It is the love of Jesus Christ. Because I am reminded of the words of John, 
the Apostle, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, and John records in John 13, verse 1, as Jesus is gathering together with His, with his disciples, and it says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father. Listen to this. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Having loved His own, who was gathering the apostles of Jesus? Who was among them? The very betrayer whom Jesus said would be among them that night. But in that room, there was also James, the brother of John. And James was one of the inner circle who went everywhere with Jesus. You've read it as you read through the Gospels. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John, who were the disciples closest to the Lord. Not that the Lord had favorites. He loved all of them and, and used them all, and they all followed Him. But there was just an inner circle that, was, that He had chosen closest. Gives us an indication of how Jesus prepares His groups and His church for leadership. But when Jesus began to call men to become His disciples, He found a fisherman named Peter, who was working with His business partners, brothers, by the way, named James and John. And when the Lord helped them one day, with this huge catch of fish, well, let's, let's consider that particular story in Luke chapter 5. Because there in Luke 5, we're told that Jesus had come down to the seashore and, and <clears throat> there's a great multitude is just pressing upon him. And, and so he enters into a boat with Peter and he tells Peter to, you know, push off from the, from the shore, go out. And then he tells Peter to put his net down on a, on a certain side of the boat. And, you know, Peter being a nice guy, I mean, he's saying, you know, Jesus, you don't know much about fishing, but... You know, we've been all out here all night fishing, but if you say, you know, put the net out, we'll do it just to be nice. And let me just show you that I know a little bit more about fishing than you do. I'll be nice. Put the net out. And then at that moment was this great catch of fish, more fish than they had ever caught before, so much so that they had to call their friends to come over with another boat and bring this whole catch in together. And I pick up in verse 8 of Luke chapter 5 where it says, When Peter, uh, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, he already knew Jesus, but he didn't realize who Jesus was until this very moment. And then he says, Depart from me. He realizes that this is someone special, someone different than anybody they've ever known. And he says, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He recognized the holiness of God in Jesus. For he, in verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John. There's James, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. That last phrase there is something very interesting to me. There are a lot of people who are just Christians part-time. They're part-time Christians. 
Part-time Christians only when they come to church. Only when they, you know, around Christian people. But aren't, aren't really forsaking all and following Jesus Christ. This is very important. It was at this point in time that Peter and James and John became full-time followers. That is not saying that you have to forsake all in the sense of giving up your jobs, giving up your homes, giving up everything and going. It is saying every day I'm going to follow Jesus Christ no matter what. Because of who He is, because of His holiness, because of His righteousness, because of His goodness, because of His power, I'm going to follow Jesus. And I'm going to show Jesus Christ in my jobs and in school or wherever I go or whatever I do, no matter what it is. But getting back to Peter, James, and John. When Jesus raised a little girl from the dead, only three disciples were allowed to see the miracle. Peter, James, and John. That's Mark 5, 37. And He permitted no one to follow Him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when Jesus went up to the mountain and allowed His glory to be seen briefly while meeting Moses and Elijah... There were only three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. Mark 9, verse 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. When Jesus went to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, there were three disciples who were led there by him, Peter, James, and John. Notice Mark 14, verses 32 and 33. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here. Well, I pray. That's all of them. But then look at verse 33. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. But the incident that brings us back to Acts chapter 12, the incident that brings us back to our text today, is one that gives a prophetic taste to what will happen to James. And that's found in Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 20. It was a time when there was uh, a desire in, in James and John's heart to sit at the right hand and left hand of Jesus Christ in the kingdom. And they wanted to get a little bit of uh, encouragement and a little bit of pull on their side, and so they brought Mama along. Mama Zebedee comes. And notice in verse 20 it says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup. Stop. Think about what he just said. You will indeed drink my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. What is that? Death. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. A prophetic taste for James. You will drink that cup.
But he loved his disciples, you see. He loved his disciples to the end, and to the end they all loved him. He loved his disciples to the end, and in the end they all loved Jesus. In what they did in their lives. And being one of Jesus' intimates in the inner circle... Was James expecting to be protected from harm? If we're in some inner circle with Jesus, or if we're in some inner circle Bible study, as we think that this is really the well-protected group because we're so close to Jesus, we're much closer to Jesus than anybody in our church, anybody around, because we're, we're tight with the Lord. You think that that will protect you? Had Jesus not told His disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, and you will be hated by all for My name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Did He not encourage them time and time again that they needed to be ready, that at any given time they would be taken and they would be arrested and even killed for their faith in Him? But you see, the predominant love of Christ, the predominant love of Christ is always mightier than the sword. Even when things don't make sense. The predominant love of Christ is always mightier than the sword, even when things don't make sense. Listen, people have asked, why James and not Peter? Wasn't Peter the, the real leader? Wasn't he always out front? Was his, when is, wasn't his name always mentioned first? Wasn't he the one that would seem to be the, 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 the one who stood out to preach more than anybody else? Why James and not Peter? Well, I've got only one answer. We don't know. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows. And His love for us is key to understanding all that we experience in this life. I want you to consider what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 and 30, uh, through, uh, through 39. He says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. <laughs> For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus Our Lord, nothing will separate us, not even a sword that may cut us off in this life, will separate us from the predominant love of Jesus Christ. But this leads us also to to the the second point that I want to make today, and that is that the purposes of God's sovereignty are also mightier than the sword. The purposes of God's sovereignty are also mightier than the sword. And we look at verses 3 and 4 now of our text in Acts 12, and it says, And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, this is speaking of uh, Herod Agrippa, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, in, in other words, cutting James off, killing him with a sword, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. And now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he arrested him, he put him in prison. So why didn't he just take his life at that moment just like he took James's life? He put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers. Four squads of soldiers, that's 16 men. To keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So now there's this this delay. 
We're going to wait till after Passover. Why is this important? Well, let's go back for just a moment. Herod's approval ratings were rising in the polls. Hey, Herod killed James. Hey, he's not such a bad guy. He's part Jewish. Must be okay. He had just killed James, and why stop there? When you could improve your ratings even more with the arrest of that big fisherman named Peter. And when best then to do this? Well, it's Passover. So, so that Herod could show he, he conscientiously observed the great feast. It was during Passover that he arrests Peter. And, and, and so now he's, he's trying to build up his, his, uh, his resume, his image here amongst the people. He knew that he would have huge crowds of Jews during the feast, and, and those crowds could possibly start a riot with all of this going on if he kills Peter too soon. So he waits to have the full attention of the Jewish population. Everybody else will be going on their way home, and those that really mattered were the ones that were now backing him up. So we'll wait till after Passover. So he arrested Peter and placed him under the watchful guard of 16 soldiers. Well, it was known that Peter had escaped from prison before. Do you remember that? He's in prison and God you know, sends an angel and lets him out. Not only that, but many of them probably remembered Peter from the time that they came to arrest Jesus. Peter took out his little sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the, you know, the priest's servants. And uh, so they think he's a little violent, so they've got to have more than just a couple of guys taking care of him. Peter, by the way, wasn't a very good swordsman. He just cut off an ear. I think he was trying to cut off a head. But here's the question. Why was James allowed to die while Peter would later be rescued? Because that's what we'll see in the rest of chapter 12. Weren't both of them servants of God? Weren't both of them servants of Jesus Christ? Weren't they both needed by the church? To be leaders and to continue what was taking place in all the move of the Spirit of God? Well, there really only is one answer. And the answer is the sovereign will of God. That is the answer. This was the very thing that Peter and the church had actually prayed about after their second experience of persecution. For in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 30. And, and I would encourage you to read all this prayer in Acts chapter 4, but I just want to take this because of time. Look at this particular passage in verse 27. It says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, this is a prayer now, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, notice, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. He is saying, It is your sovereign will, Lord. It is your determination. It is what you are doing. It is what you are planning that we pray for. And then he says, Now, Lord, look on, the, on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Herod Agrippa didn't find it hard to stretch out his hand to hurt but God's hand is asked to be stretched out to heal. 
and to accomplish signs and wonders. You see how different it is, the world and the kingdom of God. How different they are. But that was his prayer. To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The sovereign will of God is what Peter bowed to. Is what the apostles bowed to. And we could say it best by saying the throne in heaven was in control, not the throne on earth. The throne in heaven was in control, not the throne on earth. The throne on earth used the sword. The throne in heaven used the love of Christ. The throne, in he- the, the throne on earth was, was politically motivated. The throne in heaven spoke forth the sovereign will, will and purpose of God. And we as Christians need to understand this in light of what takes place in, in this world. It, it affects us all. It affects us all because all of us are touched by things that happen, uh, the unexpected events that happen in our lives, in our families, and all. Why would God do this? You know, we can't answer that question, why? But we can rest in the fact that we know that God is a good God. That God is a merciful God. That God is a gracious God. And that we need to know that God is a God that never makes mistakes. And will never make a mistake. And we need to realize that God is bigger than we are and greater than we are and is in control of all things that are taking place in all of the universe more than what we can even handle in just our own space and time in this existence. But this, uh, this really does lead us from the predominant love of Christ to the purpose of God's sovereignty being mightier than the sword to the very fact that the power of God's Word is also mightier than the sword. The power of God's Word is also mightier than the sword. Because in Romans 8.28, Paul says, And we know, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. How many times did Paul in his own life, as he was an early believer in Jesus Christ, after having come in in that dramatic way that he did on the road to Damascus, and time and again being persecuted and beaten and stoned and, and even coming to points of death in his life, and yet is able to say, all things work together for good. He is a good candidate to say that for us. He's not one that sits in an ivory tower somewhere and says, well, God is good and He hasn't hurt me at all, but you know, if He hurts you, it's okay. No, Paul experienced it. Paul knew it. Paul understood this. That all things do work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to His purpose. Whatever it may be. Now, we can't blame God when we're stupid enough to do the wrong things. But sometimes we are stupid enough to blame God. Pardon my French. But folks, we have to be awake to the fact that those things do happen because of our own sin, because of our own mistakes. But you know, when we bow before the Lord, and the Word of God is so clear, it says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is merciful, isn't He? 
And He'll strengthen us even in the midst of the consequences of our sin. And many times leads us out. If we'll just follow Him. If we'll just love Him. But we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And and you have to ask yourself the question, am I loving God? You see, many times when things happen to us, we can ask the question, you know, Lord, why did this happen? But if we love God, we'll just say, Lord, I I, I want to ask you why, but I, I know that you're in control. And I know you'll tell me if you want to, and if you don't want to, it's okay, because I know that you have everything in control. But a person who continually harps on God and says, Why, Lord, why? Why did you do this to me? Why did you do this to my family? Why did you do this to... Hey, you know what? Do you love God? Who created the heavens and the earth? Who didn't need us to help Him? Do you love God enough to surrender yourself to Him? And trust Him? Because that's what faith is, isn't it? Trusting the Lord. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. By the way, we're going to study Isaiah 55 this coming Wednesday night. This is a commercial, so I encourage you to come. But Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts, God is speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you see here the power of God's Word? These are words that came to us through the Spirit of God, to our very hearts. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. But if you want to hear the Word of God and the power of God's Word, I want you to turn to John chapter 17. Because you see God's Word and the power of God's Word is always mightier than the sword. And Jesus praying to His Father before He goes to the cross. And I would encourage you to read this particular chapter today as well. All of it. But I'm going to just read a section of it beginning at verse 13. That says, But now I come to you. Jesus speaking to His Father. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's speaking of His disciples. I speak in the world. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Did you just hear what he said? He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Take them out of, you know, protect them, safety, bring them to safety. You know, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified or set apart by the truth. Now understand that after Jesus prays this, He goes to the cross. So He's saying, I'm not praying that you should protect them or take them out of this world but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now, he didn't fail. For when James met the edge of the sword, James passed on into eternity 
with Christ. Unharmed by the enemy for eternity. You see the picture? The power of God's Word. Jesus said, I have given them your Word. I don't want to give you here in this church my ideas, my thoughts. I want to give you God's Word. Why? Because there's power in God's Word. I want to make it clear. I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm here because I want you to love God and to know God. And we best know Him and love Him and trust Him and serve Him if we stay in His Word. This is where we get to meet Him. This is where we get to know Him. You see, the Lord did not give His disciples weapons made by the hands of flesh to destroy flesh. He gave them God's Word. Today we have this same gift given to us and the results are no different. The world hates us because we're not of this world. The world truly hates us because we're not of this world. I'm not going to kowtow to this world and say, well, you know, listen, I, I know I carry a Bible, but, you know, I just want to tell you nice thoughts. I want to make you feel good about yourself and go out and, and just be, feel good. I, I tell you what, I want to tell you, believers in Jesus Christ, this is one reason why this political issue is so important. We need to pray. Because in this nation where we've had the freedom of, of religion, they're trying to change the thought into the freedom against religion. And folks, we need to understand something. Even if, even if people said you can no longer preach in public places, that's when we as believers in Jesus Christ should take the higher law, which is God's Word. The world hates us because we're not of this world. We no longer belong to this kingdom of darkness if we have indeed come to the kingdom of His light and life. Paul says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Have you been delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed or transferred into the kingdom of the Son of His love? You see, I, I want you to ask these questions. This is the examination of our lives, of our hearts before God. We were told in the Scriptures, examine yourselves to see that you're in the faith. Well, let's do it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. What are the weapons of our warfare? Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 17, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the, is, which is the Word of God. Read all of Ephesians chapter 6, and then you see the full armor of God, from the helmet down to the feet of the preparation of the gospel of peace. But in every part of that armor, from the helmet to the shoes, everyone speaks. Everyone speaks of the characteristics of Jesus Christ. Salvation, breastplate, righteousness, Belt of truth, sword of the Spirit, shield of faith, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. Everything speaks of Jesus Christ. He. And it brings us back to this very thing. That the predominant love of Jesus Christ is mightier than the sword. 
The purposes of the sovereignty of God, of God's sovereignty, is mightier than the sword. The power of God's word is mightier than the sword. As we get ready to come to the table of communion this morning, in just a minute, I want you to take hold of these thoughts. That the idea of this pen being mightier than the sword was, was, to, was that communication surpasses violence in effectiveness, worth, and value. My question to you is, what are we communicating? What are we communicating? Are we communicating the love of Christ? Are we communicating the very purposes of God's sovereignty? Are we communicating the power of God's Word in our lives? James certainly did, and it brought him to his end. Peter certainly did, and eventually would bring him to be crucified like his Lord, except upside down, because he couldn't stand to be crucified just like his Lord. His Lord was so much higher, so much greater than he but my, my burden for us here is that we take these words in the Scriptures and realize the seriousness of them in the day and time in which we live. To some extent, we have been shielded here. To some extent, we have been protected here. Why? I don't know. There's so many of our brothers and sisters all across the world that are going through so many different trials because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Many of them facing the sword. Saw a picture in one of the uh, websites uh, of, of, of a young girl who was cut with a sword all across her face for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And folks, we're over here. Sometimes we complain because we don't like the piano on this side. We want it actually over here. We complain because of the air conditioner or the heater, whichever one comes first. This chair is too lumpy, this chair is too hard, this chair is just right. But we don't see what's happening. You see, we haven't forsaken all to follow Jesus. As we take the bread and the cup, and I encourage each and every one of you, take the bread, take the cup. Why? Because we're here to remember Jesus, because He commanded us to do so. Do this, He says, in remembrance of Me. This isn't going to save you. You know what is? That you say to the Lord Jesus, forgive me, Lord, of my sins. Maybe you haven't ever, you've never prayed to receive Jesus. Do it today. Say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I, I, have, I have lived against you. Now I pray, Father God, you have mercy on me. I repent. I turn from all of those sins. I, I want to live right with you. I believe in my heart. I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that He's risen from the dead. Lord, save me. Take the bread, take the cup, and remember what Jesus did. Body broken for us. His blood shed for our forgiveness. Take it. Let's pray.